Boker Tov, Boker Tov. So we have a lot of announcements to make today. Okay. The first announcement is that there have been new developments with our shiur. Okay. Uh, I made, I made, I made, uh, I, made uh, I made an official, I made an official shiur email. Yeah. Okay. I made an official shiur email that now, uh, for you it's not relevant because you're asking me your questions for in, in Others class. they can ask. And there are a lot of other people who send me text messages all the time. The problem with text messages is that my, my thumbs start to hurt after a while. <laughs> so I, I answer very short. But I made the email so I could answer on my computer. And I've already gotten two comments. Two comments. So what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to address people's uh, insights and questions during the shiurim. The ones that we receive via email. Everybody is encouraged to send emails uh, to me at jonathan at the parashapodcast.com. Even official. You know, I didn't make a Gmail or anything. I made it an actual domain. Um, so I, I want to tell you I want to tell you the three insights that I've gotten or questions slash insights that I've gotten. We we want to address them before we continue in the class. So the first is from Niku Nababian. He said This morning you were talking about how Yitzhak showed more love towards Esav and how the commentary makes him out to be an evil killer. My take on this is that he was just a normal guy, but since the Torah is letting him get one put over his eyes, the Rabbanim don't want to tell us that we are descendants of someone who got his nation from trickery. Therefore, they make Esab out to be a bad guy to justify Yaakov's behavior. So his point is, I think the rabbis, uh, I'll take his point to an extreme to make it clear. So I think the rabbis are being a little bit disingenuous. They know that Yaakov did something wrong by yeah, taking the, the, and they're, they're giving cover. You know, we descend from Yaakov. So the rabbis are making him look better so that, you know, and, uh, and so that we, we feel better about ourselves because we basically got our way in an inappropriate manner. It's a, it's a cynical view of the Chachamim. I, I'm, I'm disinclined to, I'm not, I don't agree. And I, my, my questions on that are, if the, the rabbis are completely... What is that? You don't agree with his question? I don't, I don't agree with his assumption. His assumption is that the rabbis are trying to just make itself look bad so we come out on top because we did something wrong. So my, my only problem with that is if so, if Esav really deserved, let's say, the blessing and Yaakov was, was pulling one over his eyes and was tricking him and was doing it inappropriately, then why does the text that relates to this blessing begin with and it was when Esav was 40 years old and he took wives from the Canaanite women. And his mother and father were dis- very greatly distressed over the fact that he took wives from the Canaanite women. That piece, those two psukim that I just mentioned, open up the story of, this, of the trickery that Yaakov did upon Esav. So, so it seems like the pasuk is indicating something. I mean, previously, when you were not from the family of, of Abraham and Haran as a woman, that would basically disqualify your kids from being part of the covenant. So couldn't you say that the text is hinting to us that Esav is being disqualified because of the woman that he married? On top of that, why are we blaming Yaakov so much? At the end of the day, it's Rifka's activity, not Yaakov's. And it seems... If I'm not mis- I mean, maybe you'll disagree with me, but the Torah seems to be continuously giving women the deeper insight, like, like listen to Sarah about the ch- choice of Ishmael. No. The Torah also, I have a feeling, is telling us that Rivka is right over here for choosing Yaakov. The Rivka is right. It's kind of in line with what we saw with Sarah, that Sarah was right about choosing Yitzhak. 
And now Rivka has a deeper, and Yaakov is doing nothing but listening to, in fact, Yaakov protests yes. to what his mother yes. says. And he says, what if, what if he finds out and then he thinks, and he curses me instead of blesses me? And Rivka says, do it anyways, the curse is on me. So this idea that Yaakov was like a, you know, was a trickster. First of all, I don't think he's a trickster. I think he's doing what is, I think he's, he's probably doing this very, with a lot of fear. I think his mother is the one who's engaging in all of this. So I wouldn't blame Yaakov for, for this activity. I wouldn't say Yaakov. Yaakov is doing kibbut or kibbut em in this case. So I, I, for those reasons, I disagree with the sentiment from this email from Niku. Um, so it says here that the blessing, when it was blessing, since the divine presence was resting upon Isaac, he managed to bless. So he felt comfortable to bless. So, ah, so you're saying on top of that, he wouldn't, the blessing wouldn't have come out if the divine blessing didn't rest on him and, if the, and it would only rest on him if it was the right son in front of him. Yes. Yeah, but that's also Midrashik. It's, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a tougher answer to give. But I think my two answers are textual and I think um, they make the case that Yaakov was not. You're an amazing t attorney. Uh, <laughs> okay, next, uh, next thing was from Coletta Kimian. Amazing. She sent me the most beautiful thing. I read it last night at like 2 in the morning. Um, so she said that she's also been very confused about the, the whole situation with Yitzchak. What is Yitzchak? Why, what's his significance and everything? And she basically made the case that, I'm going to paraphrase, paraphrase and probably not, I'm not going to do such a good job, but she made the case that Yitzchak, what's, what's the greatness of Yitzchak? Is that he was able to to uh, set down roots and establish the greatness of Abraham despite the fact that he didn't add anything to it. So she, she was making the point that it's, it's very, for many reasons, it's often very hard for a child. Let's say I'll, I'll add a little bit of my own thing. What I'm thinking is imagine you're Yitzchak and you see Abraham in his greatness. It's very hard to swallow your pride and to say that Abraham was perfect. It is my duty to add nothing, but to just try to continue what he did. It's very, that, that would require you to swallow your pride a little and say that I'm not going to be as great as my father, let's say. My father was the innovator. It's my job to just continue his way. So every child wants to be the great innovator, the great leader. But in a way, Yitzchak may have sacrificed his pride in, and just to maintain. accepted the position of I'm going to maintain Abraham. I know my friend David Levian was saying also, he said, maybe that's why Yitzchak can't leave the land of Israel because, exactly because he, right needs, he needs to, to plant roots. You know, you have, you have people Don't who move roots. to Israel, but then you need somebody to actually plant Amen. the land. And, and what's ironic is that what's Yitzchak's occupation right after what we did, the last pasuk we did yesterday? Yitzchak's occupation is that he's a, he's a farmer. What? Now, what's the difference between a shepherd and a farmer? Well, a shepherd is kind of like a vagabond. He, he walks around. He's not, he's not very set. He doesn't have a specific space. But once you start planting and farming, then you're, then you're making the, they're making the land yours. Yeah, and you're there. You have to look at it every day. To see, yeah, you have to see how it's an it investment in land. So Yitzchak becomes the planter and the farmer, which represents his settling the land more. So, so the idea that Colette was trying to say is that Yitzchak's innovation is that he, he, he strengthened the ways of Abraham in the land of Israel. And he gave them uh, a solid Kibra, foundation. Kibra, he gave them a solid, a solid foundation. And uh, thus really, a, 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 if on, in Abraham's generation, he was an innovator, but things did not stick. And we'll see that in the coming story as well. 
um, with, the, with the wells, which is going to be interesting. The final comment I did get was from my, my, one of my best friends from Israel. Uh, he sent me a voice note this morning. I sent him. He's a very deep, like, uh, he's, he's an in, in, insanely intelligent person. So he, he said, um, I understood your point about the two ideologies and the, remember what we said about the political mm -hmm. spectrum and mm -hmm. the, what was it, Monday, Tuesday? <laughs> uh, so I understand your point, but you also have to take into account that there are many people who are corrupted by religion, like, let's say, radical Islamists who will use the name of God in order to kill people. So you're saying that there is the godly way and the non-godly way, and the non-godly way will always... So he said, what about the people who take the godly way and then they just corrupt it? So my, my question, my response to that would be, Definitely. Are those people serving God or are they serving their will, their exactly. own, their selves? That's not godly. It's very easy to serve God when God basically lets you do whatever you want or when God lets you become the animal you want to become. You know, because in that case, are you, you're not really serving God, you're just serving yourself. Or you're making a God so there's, so there's like a difference between putting God at the center of your reality and then living by that God's rules or claiming that you're following God's rules and doing what you want to do for your own pride and for your own, uh, your own grandeur and everything. So I think when religion devolves into something where people are killing each other, or at least when the service of the one God devolves into something where it, it allows someone to murder other people, then the person is really just using that as an excuse to do what he wants to do, which is to murder, rather than... Uh, actually being a godly way So I wouldn't call that the godly way That even though it looks like it, There's a facade of uh, service of God there I would it's cast that It was a camouflage I'll put that in the category of service of the self yes. Of self-worship yes. where, where again it will once again uh, And I say for much of Christianity's history I think they, had, they struggled yes. with this That's why they ended up They were always attacking the Jews I think the, the novelty of America is that for the first time they actually did put God at the center, mm -hmm. and that's why Jews have always been treated relatively well in America. Hundred dollar bill and God we trust. You know they, they finally realized that it's not Let's we can't use the church. Let's see if they can continue. Right, they they uh, they finally realized that we can't use the church to just uh, really just make an excuse for our own jealous and inappropriate behavior. They finally realized that we we have to actually practice what we preach, and then America came became this beautiful amazing nation. Which we hope will survive. Amen. Okay. Pasuk Yud Gimel. This is Shilishi. So we just we know that after uh, his approach, his uh, encounter with Abimelech about with Rivka, he becomes a very wealthy farmer. So the man grew up, and he went, and he became great until he became extremely great. I think this is referring to wealth and yes. stature. Yes. Interesting. Like why, is he, why is it referred to like Haish. Haish. Haish is a word that's used by for great men. This is an ish. An ish is a great man. The, the great I think I think it's almost it's almost showing you like what the Avimelech's type would look. They see this man, they see this great they're they're seeing him as an ish, like a very respectable man. And he had many uh, sheep and many ca much cattle and a lot of wealth and the Pelishtim they became jealous of him. And all of the wells that the servants of Abraham, his father, dug in the days of Abraham, the Pelishtim had filled and stuffed up 
by Maluma Far and they filled them with dirt. By Omer Abimelech al Yitzchak, and Abimelech said to Yitzchak, Lech me'imanu, go from us ki atzamta mimenu me'od, because you become much stronger than us. Vayelech misham Yitzchak, vayichan benachal gerar vayeshev sham. So Yitzchak goes from there, a little bit, he doesn't go so far because he's still in Gerar. Goes into the Wadi of Gerar and he dwells there. Vayashov Yitzchak, so he returned. Vayachporet berot ha'mayim asher chafiru bimei Avraham Aviv. So he went and he redug the wells that were dug in the days of Avraham. Vayasatemum pelishtim acharemot Avraham. That the pelishtim had filled after Avraham's death. And he called them names, like the names that his father called them. And the servants of Yitzchak dug in that wadi. They found live, running, fresh water. The shepherds of Gerar fought with the shepherds of Yitzchak, saying, the water is ours. And they called the name of the well contention or fighting because they fought with him. Let's, let's finish the Pesukim. They dug another well and they fought also on that well and they called the name Sitna. They called it uh, hatred, fighting. So he went further from there and he dug another well. But they did not fight on that one. And he called it Because God has opened up for us and we become many in the land. So he goes up from there to Beersheba. God appears to him that night. And God appears to him and he says, I am the God of Abraham, your forefather. Do not fear because I am with you. I will bless you and I will make your descendants great because of Abraham, my servant. Again, Again we're, we're, we're giving it all up to Abraham. He builds there a, uh, an altar and he calls out in the name of God. This is the first time we're seeing Yitzchak do such a thing, by the way. He calls out in the name of God, building an altar. And he pitches his tent there. And his servants, they started digging a well. Now as they're starting to dig a well, Avimelech comes to him from Gerar, and some of his friends, and his general, Fichol. Yitzchak says to them, Why have you come to me? You hated me, and you sent me away. And they said, we saw that God was with you. And we said, let there be a covenant between us, with our kids, and between you. And let us establish a covenant with you. If you will do good to us, as we've done good to you, uh, please, O oh, blessed one of God. And I'm skipping a pasuk. He makes them a feast. They eat and they drink. And they get up in the morning, they swear to one another, and Yitzhak sends them on their way, and they go in peace. And then Yitzhak's servants come to him and say, We found another well. And uh, what do they call the well? Shiva. They called it seventh. Why? Because it's the seventh well. The three of Abraham. The three, which ended in Rechovot. And then the final well in Beersheva, which was the seventh well that Yitzhak had dug, which became the seventh one. So the Shiva seems to be an indication of the seven wells. 
So just to recap all of the reasons why Be'er Sheva is called Be'er Sheva. Because of this. First of all, the underlying reason is because the word Sheva is the same as Shivu'ah, which is where two swears occurred. The swear of Avraham and Abimelech and the swear of Yitzchak and Abimelech. Both of, both of the swears seem to be pretty, pretty similar. Then other, the second reason why we have the name Shiva or Be'er Sheva is because of the seven sheep that Abraham established as part of the covenant. He said, why do you have seven sheep? And he says, I'm doing seven sheep in order to establish a covenant that this, uh, that, uh, that this well is mine or something. And finally, the, seven, well, the seventh well that Yitzhak had dug himself uh, after redigging Abraham's three wells and then the Sitna, the, the Esek, Sitna, Rehovot, and Shiva. So those were the, the seven wells that uh, are all represented and, that's, and the final one was dug in Be'er Shev. Okay, that's a summary of the word Shiva. Question. Um, it's not a question, but it's an observation that I noticed. You know, you mentioned oh, what what was the the job of what what did Yitzhak didn't do really, really do anything. I think there's a pasuk here. Vayashov Yitzhak vayachporet beirot amayim asher chafu bimei Abraham aviv he didn't actually go and he, he did try to maintain his father's Absolutely legacy. right. That was what Colette's point was. We're saying when you look at what he does, he goes and after Abraham's death, his legacy, his legacy gets a little bit muddied. And people and some of the Pilishtim, they are refilling the wells that Abraham dug. You could almost say that the well represents like a source, the source of knowledge, the source of Torah. You know, wells are, have a, a deep metaphoric significance. And all of the wells, all of the, the lessons, you could say, that Abraham was bringing to the world through his wells, all of the water, the live water that he was, the pure water he was bringing to the world through his Torah, quote-unquote, was stuffed up by the Pelishtim. And now Yitzchak goes back and redigs those wells. He doesn't innovate, but he reestablishes. And that's what, we, that's what you need after a man like Abraham. You don't need a son who's going to innovate more because innovation already happened. You need a son who's disciplined, and who will maintain the covenant the way Yitzchak does here. Because so, then, then so, right afterwards he makes a Mizbeach. And then he makes a Mizbeach, just like Abraham. Just like Abraham. So it seems like the second he reestablishes the covenant of Abraham, he gets the Berachah of Abraham again, and he does the Korban again, which is the way Abraham was spreading, constantly spreading the word of God. So that's what we see with Yitzchak. Okay, a couple of observations. What is strange about the behavior of the Pelishtim after the death of Abraham? What did they do? They didn't keep the promises. Okay, that's true. They had this covenant with Abraham, which apparently they didn't keep. It's, you're filling up a well that you can... You uh, can, you can, you can and you, it's like cutting your nose to spite your face. Almost. Right, right. So Daniel's saying, hold on. Abraham dug wells and then he died and they refilled the wells with dirt? What in the world were they thinking? Sustenance. It's like Ush Katif. So, so what, what fascinates me is, you know, we always, see, we always see echoes of history in the, in the forefathers. As the Ramban says, And we find that these themes in the forefathers keep coming up. What fascinates me is that it's, it's almost like a joke, like an, accident, like an accident of history that the Palestinians were called the Palestinians because they're not, they're not Pelishtim or... or in old na nation from, from the biblical times, they don't exist anymore today. It's almost like an accident of history that Borei Olam wanted us to associate them with the Pelishtim here. Because whenever we left uh, Gaza, yeah. 
What did they do? They took all of the Israeli technology and they burned it to the ground. Now why in the world would they do that? They could have had brilliant, beautiful Israeli income. technology, income, farm income, amazing agriculture, but they stuffed it up instead of benefiting from it. And, and maybe the reason is because they're so filled with rage at that, that all of this success that they come into represents, represents it, yeah, they became jealous. They became jealous and, 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 and seeing they use, they use and drinking from the success of the prior person is almost like an admission of our own inability. It's like when you hate someone so much, you can't even take a favor from them. You can't even let them do something for you because that represents their superiority over you. It's almost an ad, a tacit admission an of the fact that they are better than you, right? So isn't it ironic that Borei Olam made... It's, it's, like a, it's like a joke. These people are called Pilishtim. And they behaved exactly like the Pilishtim in the time of Abraham. It's a repetition. I find it very ironic. And I don't think it's an accident. I think Borei Olam likes to play jokes sometimes. I think one of the jokes of history is that the Pilishtim somehow were called Palestinians. And their behavior is exactly like the Pilishtim in the story of Yitzhak, where they, they see opportunities for to benefit from the Jewish innovation, but instead, they stuff it up. They stuff up the wells. Okay? So that's very interesting. That's a point one to make. Now, there's one more echo, which I, I find very fascinating. Is that Yitzhak, he goes and he redigs re the wells, thus reestablishing the way of Abraham. And then, he digs one well, they come and they take it from him. Okay, fine, good. Have it. Esek, it's called. Then he digs another well. It's called Sitna. But he digs a third well. And this time, they back off. Now, why is it that they backed off? So, what I take from this is, is a lesson in how to deal with the hatred of, in our case, let's say, these days, the Palestinians. When you give in they see it as an opportunity to pounce. But if you make it clear that they have no leg to stand on, they calm down. They back off. So what Yitzchak was doing is, okay, you're gonna, fill my, you're gonna take my well, I'm, I'm gonna dig more. You think, you don't want me to be digging any wells? I'm going to dig wells until tomorrow and, and, and I'm, not, I'm not going to stop. So do what you wanna do. Now in that case, they have nothing, they, they, they lose their interest in fighting Yitzchak. You know? They know they know that they have they have they know that they have no opportunity to win. So I have a feeling that this was also the strategy of the, the Trump administration with, with why why they had so much success in the Middle East is because they didn't they say strength. they didn't say we're going to negotiate with you. You have a right. You no, you have a point. Opposite. They said. No, look, Israel is right. You guys are wrong. You're complaining for no reason. You have the best neighbors ever. We're, we're going to move their embassy to Yushalayim. We're, we're going to give them the Golan Heights. They deserve that. They deserve this. Everything you're saying is wrong. And take it or leave it. Take it or leave it. And guess what? In the four years, that most of the Arab nations said, what, what are we going to do? We're going to keep fighting. They're not going to back down. So we might as well become friends with them. They respect the strength. They respect the show of strength. And it causes them to back off. And the Palestinians, they lose all of they lost all of their friends now, so they're in much weakened, in much more weakened position. So look at that. That 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 I think is one of the lessons of Yitzhak is that when we as Jews back down and we let 
we give an inch, it opens up opportunities for them to complain and for them to. Yeah, exactly. But whenever we stand our ground and we say, "Look, we, we live here and we rightfully live here. Take it or leave it. We're here to stay." You want to fill up my well? I'll make another yeah, one. Yeah. Want to fill up my well? I'll make another one. <laughs> you know. Then then they end up at well. They're gonna fill up wells. So they well. They have to go back to their own lives also. You know. So that that's how that's how you contend with these people. Um, I think you do it by just confidently. And without even nudging, without budging, no blink. Take your stand, no and blink. they will back off. Okay. Um, the final element is that what happens? Yitzchak digs a well. He becomes very successful, and this is the final historical echo we're, we're gonna we're gonna look into. And then what happens once he leaves and he goes to Be'er Sheva? What do they do? What does the Pilishtim do? Again, let's work together. Let's they come back. Yes, yes. They come let's back. Peace, exactly. And let's say, let's bring peace. So this represents the classic, the historical fact that will reoccur in history over and over, is that when the Jews leave a place, the Goyim will slowly realize their mistake that they let the Jews go, and they'll come back and they'll ask the Jews to come back. Now, economically, why does this happen? Why does it happen that when the Jews leave, the country becomes poor? Well, because let's say the Jews left, what have you taken? You've taken their gold and their silver and their, maybe their silver Hanukkiah and you've taken that, you've took it into your own house. Now the problem is that, have you now become wealthier because you took that? Well, well what is wealth? The wealth of a nation. Well, the wealth of a nation is dependent on its ability to innovate and to produce goods and services. This is my economic side speaking. Now, if you take away the producers of the goods and services. Now you could have all the gold in the world, but you have nothing to buy with it. So you could have, imagine you take a million dollars to Zimbabwe. Are you a wealthy man? Well, you'd be wealthier on welfare in the United States than you'd be with a million dollars in Zimbabwe. Because you have nothing to buy with that wealth, with that money, with that currency in Zimbabwe. So the Jewish people, yes, they amassed a lot of wealth, but why did they amass wealth? Well, they amassed wealth because they created efficiencies in banking. They created innovations and in technology. They created innovations in agriculture and produced more food. And then all of a sudden they have wealth. Do you know why they have more wealth? Do you know why they have money in their pocket? Because everybody else has more food now. And people, what, they, what do they see? They see the money in the pocket of the Jew, but they don't think to the second step and say, well, the, the money is there because everybody else has food because of that innovation. So then you take the money from the Jew and you disincentivize the Jew from further doing more development and then what happens you have a lot you have a lot of money but nobody has food anymore so then in that at that point the nation of the world comes back to the jew and says please come back to my nation we want peace with you we realize it apparently it doesn't the text doesn't say explicitly but once Yitzchak leaves you can imagine all the biracha that the Pilishtim were experiencing went downhill immediately probably they probably refilled those wells so uh, that's the final lesson of history within our parasha. Baruch Adonai Amen. Amen.